All right. Hey, once you've met someone, you can just go ahead and take a seat. I uh, just want to say good morning. Welcome to The Exchange. My name is Josiah. I'm so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. So if you would do me a favor and turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, we would love to get you one so you can follow along with us. But we are in Mark chapter 9. We're actually finishing chapter 9 today. So look at that. We're flying by. Um, let me actually just bring this up. Uh, groups. Just want you guys to know that we do have small groups that meet throughout the week. We have eight or nine now community groups that meet throughout the week. Uh, so I'm talking to everyone here. If you're in a group, remind your group leader, this is a new month. Every month, once a, one time a month, we break away and do an outreach together as a group. So my group's going to the Broward Center of Outreach. Uh, we're going to do some like homeless ministry stuff. If you guys have a group, talk to your leader, be creative. Uh, we try to give each group a little budget so you can bless and serve your community. So new month... New outreach, just want to make sure you guys know about that. And if you're not in a group, uh, please, we love to take the message and then talk about it and like live it out together throughout the week. So, hey, Mark chapter 9, uh, we're basically taking the year to go through the, to the, go through the gospel of Mark. And we just want to focus on the real Jesus. Who is Jesus? What did he say? What did he claim? What did others say about him? And so we're taking our time rather than just rushing through it. Who knows when we'll teach through Mark again? So I'm just trying to wring it out and really get as much as we can out of this book. There's so much here. And so uh, just in case you are new, catch you up, this is the shortest gospel. Uh, this is kind of known as the ADD gospel. This is the gospel of Mark. Or the gospel of Mark is where kind of he jumps from subject to subject, story to story, very quick paced. We'll see that in our text today. And Mark was actually a guy who spent time firsthand with Peter. Peter calls Mark his son in the faith in the, in the book of 1 Peter. So Peter and Mark had a deep relationship. It's believed that Mark's gospel is really handed down from Peter, a firsthand experience. And so here's what we did last week. Last week, we looked at the story where Jesus comes down from the mountain. The Mount of Transfiguration is what we call it. Basically, the disciples saw Jesus for who he was. He was metamorphosized in a sense. That's the, that's the word it uses. They saw Jesus in all of his glory. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He meets a father. The son is demonized. And the father goes to Jesus for help. The disciples are not able to cast out the demon. So the, Jesus says to the father, listen, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father famously said this, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I, I think with that, just speaks to all of us. When I read about this father, I so relate. I go, Lord, I, I believe, but help those areas of my life where I don't. I believe, but there's still unbelief. And there's so much there. And, and Jesus ends up healing his son. And then we see the disciples later look on and go, Jesus, why could you heal him and why couldn't we? We, we used to be able to do this. Why can't we do this? And Jesus said famously, he goes, uh, this kind can only come out through fasting and prayer. And there's some things God only does when people call upon him and seek him and fast and pray and cry out. And we're just in a pursuit of him. And that's what we talked about as a church is we want to see South Florida just renewed by the gospel. We want people to know Jesus, hear about Jesus, walk with Jesus. And it's not just going to happen. This kind only comes out through fasting and prayer. We want to be proactive in that. And so we looked at this story as a whole. Now, now here's where we're at today. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. And here's uh, something as I was studying and, and looking at this and next week and the week after. Uh, this text is tough. This is a hard text. This is hard for me. Uh, next week and the week after is a hard text. The next few weeks are going to be rough. Sooner or later, either today or next week, I'm going to offend, if not one of you, all of you. Um, Jesus is going to talk about hell today. 
marriage and divorce next week, and money. All right, so I know I'm gonna, if I'm not going to offend you today, I'm going to offend you next week or the week after. I mean, this is kind of where we're coming up to a part now where Mark has given us the teachings of Jesus. And this is like interesting if you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark. So far, Mark has just given us stories of Jesus, not a lot of teachings from Jesus. Now we're entering into some teachings from Jesus, teachings on servanthood or how to be great, teachings on heaven, hell. We're going to now walk into just different teachings from Jesus, hearing his word on these thoughts. And so the main thought, the main really takeaway from today is simply this, how to be great. What we're going to look at and study is Jesus answers this question on how to truly be great. That Jesus doesn't say, hey, don't desire to be great, but he redefines what greatness looks like. He redefines how to be great. So as we read Mark chapter 9, verse 30, uh, I want to look at it from that standpoint of just Jesus is showing us, here's what true greatness really looks like. So let's read Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Uh, It seems a little, you know, kind of scattered all over the place, but that's Mark. It, It will flow. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says, Then they departed from there, he just healed that son, and they passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it, for Jesus taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Do you think that's pretty clear, right? Is that pretty clear? Yeah? Okay. Uh, Verse 32. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. (laughs) Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But the disciples kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me (laughs) receives not me, but him who sent me. Now John kind of defers, changes the subject here for verse 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side." For whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42, but whoever causes one of these little ones who stumble, whoever causes little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For who everyone will be seasoned with fire. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Like I said, this is not the funnest text, but it's so necessary. Just even praying over this this text this week, just going, God, help me, help me have some lighthearted moments in this and Help me have some moments where I can, you know, just communicate this. And I feel like I just need to honestly just simply 
bring clarity, and I, I just need to really bring to the light what Jesus said. Rather than trying to beat around the bush, we've got to approach this head on. And I, and I hope this is one of those sobering things for us. And Jesus here, if you, if you don't catch this, he's redefining greatness. He's telling us how to live a life that truly is great. So let's just pray and ask the Lord just to speak to us this morning. Father, we just, um, we thank you for this text. It's hard. It's confusing. It maybe frustrates us. But Lord, I do ask that you would just speak and that you would move, and this would not be about what we want to say or what we want to experience or do, but Lord, just speak to us. Thank you for everyone who's in this room this morning. I believe uh, you brought them here because, God, you want to speak to them. Jesus, we thank you for, for your teachings on this. We thank you for what you speak to us on this. So, God, be in this place. Move. And, Lord, we just ask that we just have ears again to hear and, and not miss out on what it is you're trying to say to us this morning in your wonderful and in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I think most of you agree that from a, from a very young age, from a very early age, most of us and most kids want to be great. I mean, if you look at kids or talk to kids, they have this desire to be great. There's something within us that we, we want to have a life that matters. We want to make a difference. I don't think anyone is craving to go to work for 30, 40, 50 years and die, and they never left their fingerprint on earth, or they never left a mark. Like, we have this inherent desire to, to be great. I think that is God-given that God gave us this desire to be great. And so we see this within scriptures, within us, this desire to be great. But maybe the way we view greatness is off a little bit. Because it's interesting, we see this desire. I think for me, you know, growing up, I, I thought of greatness. I had different ideas of greatness. I don't know what you think of. When you thought of greatness, when I thought of greatness when I was eight, to me it was Michael Jordan beating the Monstars in Space Jam. Like that was greatness, right? Like greatness to me was Bruce Willis saving us from an asteroid. That was greatness. You know, today we look at LeBron or Messi and we go, that's greatness. Or CEO driving a Lamborghini and go, that's greatness. Or maybe it's a second house in the Alps, that's greatness. And I think our definition of greatness has to be changed a little bit. You know, we don't talk about greatness, I think, the same way Jesus and the Bible talks about greatness. You know, we don't look at greatness as, as a mom who's loving and disciplining her kids. We don't look at greatness as a father who does the dishes and, and helps homeless people. We don't look at greatness as someone who just faithfully gives to the church. We don't look at greatness as someone who loves those who hate them. Like, we don't look at greatness, I think, the same way Jesus looks at greatness. And I think that my definition of greatness and our definition of greatness has to change a little bit. Because notice, Jesus does not say, how dare you desire to be great. He's like, let's just redefine greatness. Let's talk about this differently. And so I, I want to I do that. You know, there's a guy, for example, there's a guy named George Mallory. He was the first guy, I think, in the 20s to try to uh, climb Everest, to get to the top of Everest. And if you read about his life, it's not sure. He actually died. They found his body in like 1999. They found his body many, many years later, but a couple hundred feet from the summit. And it's either believed that he reached the summit, it was just coming back down, and that's where he, he died, and he died with someone with him, uh, or it's thought that he died just a couple hundred feet away. Either way, he, he's a guy that a lot of the climbers look up to, like George, just the guy that had so much guts to want to scale Mount Everest. And for him, they asked him why. Like, why do you want to climb Mount Everest? And he says, because it's there. All right. Just for him, it's like, it's just I had something for him. He wanted greatness. He was seeking it. He was craving it. His son later wrote about this and wrote about his dad. And here's what his son said about his dad. He said, I would so much rather have known my father than to have grown up in the shadow of a legend, a hero, as some people perceive him to be. I would have rather just had dad. I, I, I don't know where we got this idea because there's nothing wrong with wanting to climb a mountain. There's nothing wrong with doing things like that that are great. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't know where we got this idea that that is somehow better than being in the living room with our kids. I don't know how we got this idea that somehow this is more important than investing in the people who, who God gave us to love them, to serve them. Like, again, our definition of greatness is we want to be known for some crazy one-act thing rather than a lifetime of little decisions, a lifetime of little faithful decisions. 
And we see that Jesus' definition of greatness and mine is most likely different. And this is where we have to come to scriptures and go, Jesus, how do you define greatness? What do you say about it? Like, again, right now, think about this. How do you define greatness? What is it to you? Like, if I could just attain this, if I could just get this, if I could just get this position, this job, this much pay, then I'm great. Like, what is that? And what we see is greatness is available to anyone and everyone. And this is what I love about the gospel. The greatness isn't just for those who have a crazy high paycheck or who have some, some insane title. Greatness is available to everyone through what Jesus says here, that everyone can be great. And can I tell you, the opinion that matters most is not pe- the people around us, but our God and what he says greatness is. If he says this is great, then this is great. So what does Jesus say about greatness? Three thoughts. I'll bring them out to you guys. We'll put them on the screen. Three thoughts about greatness. Jesus says it's self-sacrifice, it's self-awareness, and it's self-denial. All right? Self-sacrifice, that's what we're going to see him talk about really clearly here. Uh, self-awareness, and then self-denial. All right? That's kind of how we're going to break down how to be great. So let's look at the first one. Uh, self-sacrifice. Would you read verse 30 again with me? Mark chapter 9, verse 30. It says, uh, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For Jesus taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Let me just be really clear. This is now the second time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus sits the disciples down, and he's really clear. It's just him and the disciples. He goes, Guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. It's the second time Jesus says this. Very straightforward. Jesus did speak in a lot of parables. We see that coming up. He spoke in a lot of metaphors, hyperboles. He spoke in a lot of different ways, but this is very, he's, he's being straightforward with them, and they didn't get it. Like, is this another parable? Is this like the sower, the seed, and he went out to, like, what, what is this? They didn't get it. I just picture, like, Peter, Peter, ask. He's like, yo, I've used up enough dumb questions. I can't, ask. like, you ask, right? Like, I can't do this one. But they're like, they didn't get it. They weren't aware, and here's what's interesting. And here's the irony, and, and Mark, I think, loves irony. The irony is Jesus is saying, I'm going to be sacrificed and die. And they're saying, who's going to be the greatest? Jesus is like, let's talk about my death. They're like, let's talk about my greatness. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road, they disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. So Jesus is talking. He's going, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. Moments later down the road, like, Jesus is going to, but we're going to be the, I'm the best, I'm the great, and they're having this argument, and again, the irony to me is, as Jesus is talking about the sacrifice he's making, they're planning their life, their future, their dreams, their 401k, like, they're planning all these things, and one way to say it is, while Jesus speaks of surrendering his life, the disciples speak of fulfilling theirs, and I just want us to hear that, because that is us, again. Jesus is talking about, I'm going to surrender my life. And they're like, well, I'm going to fulfill my every dream. And again, they still had an elementary idea of what it really means to follow Jesus. They still thought following Jesus meant like glory for them right now in this moment. That they're going to rule and reign with Jesus. He's going to overtake Rome and they're going to be his right hand and left hand. And they're arguing. Now, again, remember this context because this is interesting to me. If if you've been with us in Mark 9, Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's glowing like the sun. Uh, Peter, James, and John are there. They're they're watching this. Moses and Elijah has appeared and they're having this conversation about Jesus' death. An incredible moment. Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John and says, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what just happened. They come down the mountain. The other nine disciples are having issues. They can't cast out a demon. Jesus comes and kind of saves them and casts out the demon. Now they're on this road and they're like talking like, hey, so what happened on the mountain? Like, what happened? It's like, yo, it was sick, but we can't tell you. Like, what? Like, it was, like what happened? You're like, I, I would love to tell you, but Jesus said not to. Why do you guys be part of it, not us? Because we're the greatest, right? And they're like, they're like, you're not the greatest. Jesus just called you Satan like two chapters ago. What are you talking about? You're the greatest. 
And then, and then he's like, no, no, but you guys can even cast out a demon. Like, Jesus had to save your butts. Like, what are you talking? There's just a conversation going about who's the greatest. And they're saying, no, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And, and again, I just can't imagine the, how uncomfortable that would be. Imagine walking up and, like, someone's having a conversation. Like, yo, I'm the best pastor. No, I Like, imagine how weird that is. It's so uncomfortable. And this is happening, this conversation back and forth. Jesus obviously knows what they're talking about. He goes, hey, what are you talking about? And they just don't want to answer. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And this is something that we see, and Jesus finds this as a, as a huge teaching opportunity. Jesus is like, well, let me talk to you about true greatness. What is true greatness? Because again, this is, so, this is so important to me that Jesus does not say, what do you guys, how dare you be talking about greatness? But again, I, I see that sometimes we so often miss it. Like, we miss it. We serve a God who came and served and died for us, and we're arguing about, the, I want to be the best. And so they're having this conversation, and look how Jesus now teaches them about greatness. Let's keep reading. It's in verse 35. It says, And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So we now kind of enter into the teaching of Jesus. And think about this. Jesus, so far, there's not a lot of teachings that we have in the Gospel of Mark. Not a lot. It's primarily stories about Jesus saying, look who he is, look what he's done. It says Jesus sat down. If you notice that, he sat down. That's the posture of teaching. He sat down and they go, okay, Jesus is going to tell us something. And Jesus tells them, and he tells them now how to be great. And I, I do think this is really interesting. Again, Jesus is not saying uh, you guys should be talking about greatness. He's not saying the desire for greatness is bad. He's saying, let's redefine and redeem and redirect your thoughts of greatness. Because again, the way you and I think about greatness and the way Jesus thinks about greatness is very different. So he says this, he goes, he must be the servant of all. If you want to be first, you got to be last of all and servant of all. Now, if you've grown up in the church, maybe you heard this verse a little too much. Your parents are like, well, you want to be the best, you got to be, the, you gotta be last. You want to be the first, you got to be last. And you're like, I'll show you last, right? Like, I don't know, like, if, it, if this is one of those verses that kind of frustrated you growing up, or maybe it's been misused or, like, abused. Like, well, if you want to be first, you got to be, like, maybe people twist it on you. But let's just for a second, like, think about this and hear this. He's like, you want to be first of all, you got to be least. You got to be last. You got to be the servant of all. Now, now here's, I got to point out that little word, all. You got to be servant of all. Because for you and me, it, it is easy at times to serve the people we want to serve, the people we like to serve. I like this person. I like this people group. I like this table over here. I will serve them. But serve them? We kind of like have this mindset, I'll serve you. I'll serve you, not you. I'll serve you. No, not you. We kind of pick and choose, and, and it's not, it can't be selective. Jesus saying when it comes to serving, it's not selective. You must be the servant of all. And, and that's, that's where it gets tough. That's what's hard for us. Like even my enemy even the person who's always being served, even them, they never serve. Why would I serve the one who's never serving? He's like, you must be the servant of all. And that's the word for me that kind of has me like step back and go, okay, am I a servant to all? Like, where am I at when it comes to serving? How do I serve? What does that look like when it serves? Do I serve to get something? Do you serve others? Do you serve your boss to get that promotion, to get that raise? Do you serve others to get kind of inside with it? Like, what, who and what do we serve and how often and, and where and when? And Jesus is saying, listen, it's all. It's all. It's the least. It's maybe the unnoticeable. If you want to be first, you must become the servant of all. You know, it's been said this way. You truly know you're a servant by how you respond when someone treats you like one. You truly know you're a servant by how you respond when someone treats you like one. Like, really think of that. Imagine someone treated you like a servant. Like, imagine someone treated you this way. Imagine you bring them food and they just knock on the ground and go, pick it up, <laughs> right? And you're like, yes, I will. Like, what would you do? You're like, you pick it up, right? Like, what is our response? 
And here's the thing, like I know within all of us, myself, all of us, there's this area of, of servanthood just where I'm not there. We haven't arrived. I don't think we ever arrive, but Jesus, this is Jesus. If you look at like, if you go to a restaurant and, and you see a table of just important people and you go, oh my gosh, look at all those important people. And then you see the waiter serving them and serving them. And you're like, man, there's so many important people. Jesus wouldn't be necessarily at that table. He'd be the one serving that table. See, Jesus is like, I, I'm, I've come to be the servant of all. I've come, I'm come to be that waiter, the one who serves you, that comes alongside you. And he goes, and if you want to be like me, you must become last. You must become last of all. So let me just ask you guys, where are you at when it comes to serving? Where am I at? Like, how do we, who do we pick and choose who we serve? And how do we serve? And when do we serve? And if someone treats you like a, if let's say you never get a thank you. I've noticed that with like our generation, a younger generation in some ways is, is almost like, well, they didn't thank me, so I'm done serving. They didn't, they didn't notice it, I'm done. It's like, okay, well, what are you doing it for? What is the motive behind the serving? Again, you know you're truly a servant by how you respond when someone treats you like one. I think this is what Jesus is trying to show them. And, and again, they're arguing about the greatest. I'm going to rule and reign. I'm going to sit at Jesus' right hand. No, I am. And the thought, again, here's why people want to be great today. Today, They think, and we think, if you're great, you have money, you have position, you have authority, people serve me. That's what we think. Like, if I'm great, people serve me. If I'm great, I don't have to serve anymore. We kind of think, like, once I have reached and attained, people just serve me hand and foot, and I just receive it. Jesus says the opposite, though. You know, it's funny, P Plato had this famous quote of saying, can anyone really be happy who serves? Like, Plato asked that question, like a philosophical deep question. Can you really be happy as a servant? Jesus says that's the only way to be happy. Jesus is like, that's the only way to be satisfied, is to take on that mindset. And, and I love this one guy, this guy named Daniel Aiken. He, he wrote a commentary on Mark, and he said this. He, he put it this way. He says, before Christ redeems us and sets us free, we are like crack, he says, sorry, before Christ redeems us and sets us free, we're like crack, crack addicts addicted to ourselves. We're like alcoholics intoxicated with ourselves. We are not interested in serving as in being served, in giving as in receiving, in pursuing God's way as in getting our way, in being the least as in being the greatest. He's like, before Christ, we're just addicted to ourselves. I, I wanted to like say this, but I couldn't, so I had to quote someone else who could say this, right? I couldn't be like, you guys are like, crack. like he's saying, but that's what we are. We're so focused on ourselves before Christ. And he's like, it's until we really experience, we go, wow, I once was a taker, now I'm a giver. I was once always taking and sucking the life and sucking like, the life and emotions and money and things out of people, but now I'm a giver. Now when I walk in a room, I'm not sucking the life out of the room, I'm bringing life to it. He goes, something, something completely switches. I mean, is this not what Jesus said about himself? We're going to read it in a couple of weeks in Mark 10, but here's the verse. It's Mark chapter 10. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is like, this is why I came. I didn't come to be served. God comes to earth. He should be served. When God comes to earth, like, that's what we should do. But God came to earth, and he came to serve. He's like, no, no, I'm here to serve you guys. You want to be first, be last. And then Jesus, I love this. He has a physical illustration. Like he, he's like, okay. And he grabs a child, sets him, the, he brings him in his arms. And again, in verse 37, we'll read it. What does he say? For whoever receives one of these little ones in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, this isn't that shocking to us today in the 21st century. And let me explain this why. Um, we are a kid-centered culture. We are, we Talk, look at kids and talk about kids and like we almost worship kids in America in the 21st century like kids don't do wrong like we kind of have a mindset when it comes to kids like like everything they say and do like they can do anything We're like yeah you're so great right like we we love we're very kid centric Micah can do scribbles on a piece of paper and he's like it's Mickey and we put it on the fridge and I'm like that's a terrible Mickey like Mickey's three circles come on kid like just draw three circles but we like we're very kid centered like we're we are 
And I, I, I do want to be clear with this because we, we're kind of funny that way. Like, we now even have, like, classes, like, kids don't make mistakes. They're just expressing themselves. Like, ah! like we're just very kid-centered. In Jesus' day and back then, kids had no rights. Kids were an inconvenience. They ate, they took, they didn't give, they were consumer-based. They didn't have, they couldn't vote. They, there was nothing, like, kids, in a sense, were, in many ways, just an expense. Like, think about that. Jesus brings in a kid and goes, you want to be great? Look at this kid. You want to be great? Serve this kid. Re- receive this kid. Jesus is basically saying, want to be great? You're going to have to live a life like a parent. <laughs> parents, all the parents want to say, amen, right? He, what they're saying is, you're going to live a life just of sacrifice. You're going to live a life of now, like, putting, like, you're going to serve this. You're going to serve this child. Like, it's weird. Again, it's funny. When me, when me and Kimber were, you know, married for about seven years before we had Micah. We've been married over 10 years. I know it's crazy, right? We got married when we were 12. Um, no, but we, when we had, when, before we had Micah, we had seven years of, of no kids. And the funny thing is, like, I can remember couples, like, almost bitterly, like, oh, I can't wait to have kids. And I'm like, ugh, like, why do you say that? Like, because then it won't be about you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're scary. And I remember, like, just they would talk to us in sort of some of those lights and those ways, and it's kind of true. But here's the thought. When you have a kid, you go, I'm going to love you and serve you regardless. It's not like the baby's going to look up one day and be like, hey, thank you. <laughs> like, like, that would be incredible. <laughs> you're like, oh, my gosh, you just thanks me? You're the best. Like, it's not like, hey, I know you don't see the fruit of this right now, but you will one day. Like, the child's not going to say that. It's just not. It's just like, I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. Jesus says, you want to be great? Be like one who receives one of these children. Now, I know this is when most pastors will say, hey, that, you know, if you want to be great, go serve in kids' ministry. And I'm going to say that, yes. If you want to be like, please, we could, use, we could use some help, please, if you'd like to, that'd be great. But this is, this is more than that. You know, you know what's really cool about this? We really could if you guys would, like, please help. Um, but the funny thing in the first century, in the second century, can I explain something? In this Greco-Roman world, you had a kid, you're poor, you didn't want the kid, birth control, all that, don't really have that. You give birth to the kid, many times they just leave the baby on the corner. They just leave it like in public or leave it on the street. Many times the baby would just die from the, the weather, the terrain. Many times there would be just not good people who would take the kids and raise them to be slaves. And it wasn't good. I mean, this was like an epidemic in the Roman culture. You can read about this. And Christians started coming along and seeing babies on the street and like taking them in. And they started taking them and receiving them. And they started raising them as their own and giving them rights and giving them a new name and giving them a family. And Christians started embracing kids like no one else ever embraced kids. They're like, why do you care? Like, why do you care? They're just going to cost you a lot of money and be a lot of work. It's like, because Jesus cares. Because that was me. And Christians were known for like change. Like, we invented the idea of like orphanages. <laughs> like, we invented that. And I say for us today, like, there's so many ways we can be a part of this. There is four kids. There is saying, hey, I have a free bedroom in my home. Maybe, maybe I should pray about fostering. That is a definite opportunity. That's a possibility for some of you. It might be for one person in this room. There's possibilities of serving, of just, of just looking at people, though, and saying, I'm going to serve you and invest in you and give to you regardless. If you never benefit me, if you never add value to my life in that sense of what people look at adding value as, I'm just going to serve you regardless. And this is what Jesus says it is to be great. It's, look, I tell you, kids in their day were kind of like the outcasts. What would that be for us? What would that be for us? What would be that outcast demographic of people? Maybe the people in your heart that you wrestle with, you, you struggle with, and Jesus is saying, serve them. Serve them. You, you stereotype things in your mind and heart and head, serve them. Get to, know, get to know they're image bearers of God who I've created in my image who I love. Serve them. Release those thoughts. Release those stereotypes. They had stereotypes towards kids. They had certain thoughts that Jesus like, release that, serve. serve. That is one of the greatest ways to release some of those, are, those things in our heart that just hold on to us that are, are not good. She's like, serve them. Become the least. You want to be the, the greatest? Be the least. 
Jesus is redefining what it means to be great. Isn't that so good of our God, how he redefines it and says, this is what it's like. And I love that. It's like, he's like, it's like a parent almost. It's just serving and investing and pouring into regardless if you get anything in return. So we look at the first way, how to be great. We're going to say this, number one, it's self-sacrifice. Number two, let's keep reading verse 38. We're going to see self-awareness, self-awareness. Look at verse 38. Now John, oh, sorry, I just started. Uh, that was bad. <laughs> I have allergies right now. Uh, John changes kind of the topic. I know you're going to remember that. That's all you're going to remember now. Um, John changes the topic, and I, and I love how he kind of introduces, like, look what we did, Jesus. John answered Jesus saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For, for he who is not against us is on our side. John brings up this issue, and he goes, Jesus, there's people going around. We saw this guy, and he was casting out demons in your name, and we said, hey, you're not following us. Stop it. Stop it right now. And, and John, and I want you to actually kind of hear John in this sense. John doesn't know who this guy is. Uh, they're following Jesus. In, in some ways, I think John's heart was trying to be pure here. He's like, yo, 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 like, you're, we don't know who you are. What if you're using this Jesus name for selfish ambition and gain? What if you're just kind of weird and out there? What if you don't have integrity? We don't know who you are. I mean, think about all the implications there could be of other people doing things in Jesus. And like, what, they're not, what are, who are they? They're not good. They're not us, right? And John is kind of bringing this thing up, and he's, he's bringing up really kind of like this sectarian heart of like, you're, you're not in our little group. You're out there. You're bad. And honestly, the church, we still do do this. We're like, wait, you go to that church? You're part of that group? You're that. And we assume and we say, and it's, and honestly, it's, it really, it does break my heart because that's not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is John 17 saying, I just pray that we be unified. I pray that we be one as me and the Father are one. That is the heart of Jesus. Now, is there not going to be philosophical or even biblical convictions and differences? Yes, but let's talk through them in love. And it doesn't need to be like this belittling, so we just forbade him, Jesus, in your name. How dare he? Can I tell you what Paul wrote later in Philippians 1, verse 15? Maybe you remember this verse. It might bring, you know, come back to your mind. Verse uh, 15. Paul said, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. That's not good. And some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Paul had a maturity that is, that is beyond me. Paul's like, even if they do it from selfish ambition or envy or strife, and it's not that they're preaching Christ, I'm going I'm to not just be okay with it, I'm going to rejoice in it. And to me, if, someone, if they're preaching the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, who he is, what the essentials, the, thing, like, the things that are just, that are, are, like we're not going to give up on these. These are the foundational things to Christianity. He's like, I'm okay with that. I'm good. They're my brother. They're my sister in Christ. Can I tell you the, the real issue? If you look at verse 38, what's the real issue? What does John say? He goes, they did not follow who? Us. You notice that? They didn't follow us. He says it twice. They didn't follow us. Not they didn't follow Jesus. There was some sort of ego, that maybe some sort of attitude that John and the disciples had, some insecurities they had. They're going, they didn't follow us. If they followed us, but Jesus is like, they're not following you. They're following me. It's not, it's not about if they're following you. It's about, are they following me? This guy's following me. You know, if he's, if he's, not, he's, the, if he's not against us, he's for us. He's like, he's following me. And Jesus even shows us a better way. And, and I love verse 41 and how he kind of spins this. Verse 41, he says, Forever gives a cup of water to drink in my name. Because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he'll by no means lose his reward. Jesus is saying, the smallest thing you do in my name is going to have a reward. It's the smallest thing. It, it's, it's, not, it's not some big thing. Can I tell you, like back in this day when they were, they're very hospitable, someone comes to your house, you give a meal, you, you give clothes. 
people who didn't have that, people who weren't able to give that, they could give water. It's like, well, we can't give them, we can't give them meat, we can't give them clothes, we don't have that, we'll give you water. That, that, and Jesus is like, hey, listen, that, that might seem least, but you, you have a reward for that. God notices the smallest things. And, and be, like self, be aware of that. Can I just say, like, I think that when it comes to our standards of what greatness is and Jesus' standards, again, not only are they different, but I think when we get to heaven, we'll see what really mattered to God. Like, when we really get to heaven, what really mattered to God? Is it some big act someone did one time, one thing? Jesus is saying, I take note of the small things. Even for us, you look around, can I tell you, it's like people who set up chairs, the pipe and drape, who just do this little deep, set up this up week after week, tear, set up and tear down week after week. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, Jesus, like, do they know what they're doing? This is crazy. Like, this is crazy. It's so beautiful to watch. Like, I think what we view is great. Some people view like this part is great. It's like, no. Jesus saying that the small things, the, th- the things that seem insignificant, the things that no one notices, a cup of water, a cup of water, because you have a reward. That will be rewarded. If you do it in my name, for my glory, for me, you have a reward for that. I love the fact that Jesus takes notice of just the smallest things in our life. Don't, don't lose heart of that. If you are serving Christ or doing things for Christ, and you're like, he doesn't notice that, he notices that. Because I know for me it's easy to think like, well, if people, what if people don't notice or see this? That's the whole point. It's like Jesus is like, I'm looking for the small, insignificant thing. If you're saying to yourself, no one cares, Jesus cares. If you're saying to yourself, but no one notices that I'm spending late nights doing this, or I'm sending these, you know, writing these letters to these group of people, or I'm doing this for, like, no one sees it. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting. The most important person sees it. The most important person says, I take note of that. You'll by no means lose reward. Jesus, again, is just redefining greatness here. He's like, be aware. Be aware. There's other people who serve Jesus. Can we just rejoice in that? There's other people who serve Jesus that are not us. Praise God for that. That is good. And you know what? If they give a cup of water my name, they're going to have a reward. And he's just focusing them back to this. He's bringing them back to what true greatness looks like. And lastly, we're going to get to self-denial. Self-denial. This is the fun one. Uh, This is the hard one. This is the one where Jesus says a lot that I, I, I almost made this all of next week's message. And I'm like, no, oh, it's back to school. I probably shouldn't. It's like being really depressing. I'm going to try to like, honestly, it just does fit. This is one continual thought. This is Jesus saying, you want to be great? You're going to have to deny yourself in an extreme way and be radical about your sin. Let's read verse 42. Jesus says, but whoever ca- causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the room does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into the hell fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Oh, okay, just before you throw anything at me, let me just go into this, all right. Um, verse 42, Jesus says, listen, it's better for millstone were hung around your, if, it's better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the ocean than you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Most people do, do believe he's not just referring to children. He's referring to anyone in the faith, anyone young in the faith, anyone following Jesus and saying, if your lifestyle is pushing people away from Jesus, Jesus is referring here to capital punishment. And this time and this day, this was their capital punishment. We're going to put a big giant thing, heavy thing around your neck and be throwing you to the ocean. It's better for you to have capital punishment than push someone away from God, than manipulate or use or abuse or cause someone in a way to just be pushed from God. And this is basically, if you haven't caught this, Jesus is dealing radically with sin. 
He's just dealing incredibly radically with sin. Your hand causes sin, cut it off. Your eye, cut it off. Now, let's talk about this. Is Jesus talking about self-mutilation? He's saying that you really need to self-mutilate. You're like, we should have a bunch of people with no feet, no arms, no eyes, walking, like rolling around here. Like, is that what he's saying? And here's what we got to say. Because, again, Jesus does speak in metaphors and he does speak in hyperboles. And this is, I believe, a hyperbole. I, I think for us, we would even say, like, man, I'll give my left foot for that car. And it was like, ew, how dare you say you give a left foot for that car? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, we get it. We get it. Here, here's the idea, though. He's saying you must take sin so serious that you're willing to do whatever you can do to get rid of it, to cut it out of your life. Because either you're going to give yourself to it and it's going to own you, or you're going to cut it off. And he's saying deal with sin in a radical way. And he says it's better. And I, you hear the heart of Jesus. He's like, what's the point if you have two eyes, two hands, two feet, but you just walk into hell with us? What's the point if, if there's sin that is cancerous and killing you on the inside, and you might have your body put together, you might have like your physical body, but you're losing your soul in the process. But you walk straight into the hellfire in the process. So let's just talk about this really quick, because this is, Jesus is talking about hell, obviously. He's talking about hell in a literal way, but also in a metaphorical, hyperbole type of way. So let me just, this is hard, because I think some people are like, so there's worms that just don't die. Like, what does that mean? What does that look like? So let's, let's, let's talk through this. What is hell? You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and in this book, he has a chapter on hell. And if you can, I'd recommend that you get that or read that. Just chapters on hell, problem of pain. Here's what he says. First thing I just want to bring out. He says, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my own power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. There might be a temptation for some people to downplay hell, to say, no, no, well, there's different, there might be some sort of temptation to try to dismiss it. Sometimes we feel like we're doing God a favor. Well, I don't want to present God to bad light. If I bring up hell, maybe I'll present God as unloving. Would you guys all agree that Jesus in the scriptures is the most loving person we've ever seen? Would you agree that Jesus is constantly helping and serving and giving and healing? Jesus is the most loving person. The way he, he till, deals with a woman caught in adultery, how he says, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. Do you not think that Jesus is the most loving person, and yet here he's talking about hell? So is it unloving to talk about hell? Is it unloving to bring it up? Jesus, more than Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist, more than anyone we have recorded in Scripture talking about hell. You can combine all the things they say, Jesus has more about hell than, than they do. So Jesus obviously believed in it. He obviously talked about it, and he's obviously loving. Because if we try to remove hell, there's other issues. If we try to remove hell, there's other issues of, okay, so just evil. And, and just what happens with that? And just, so is God not just then? Does God not punish evil then? So we serve also a, okay, maybe there's no hell, but now we serve an unjust God. There's, it raises up a lot of other issues. And so here's, let's just talk through how Jesus describes and talks about hell. He's saying, listen, the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. This word hell, if you want to look it up and circle it and explore it more, it's this word basically Gehenna. Uh, it's going to say like Gehenon in, in Greek. But the idea is this. Jesus is actually referring to hell as a literal place that disciples and people would walk by on a daily basis. There was something called Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. It was basically a garbage dump. If there was someone who died, they didn't have family members to bury them, they would take these bodies and throw them in the Valley of Hinnom. They'd throw them in Gehenna. They'd take the bodies, throw them in Gehenna, and basically the bodies would just burn alive, and the, the smell, the maggots would come, and the worm, the maggots do not die. The idea is like, this is, corpses are there for, for burning. And it's for them, it's like constantly happening, a constant fire, constant. And Jesus is basically saying, look at Gehenna, that is like hell. But obviously, it's a hyperbole for something worse. So I do think we should like talk, the idea is this, when he says the worm, it's going to be, it's unquenchable, it's forever. It, that, even the idea of being destroyed, where the body, it's not annihilated, 
It's actually just like this ongoing process of destruction is how it's referring to. Again, this is not something that anyone takes joy in when you talk about. There's a real place where people who are not, fa- not believers in Jesus have not received the free gift of salvation. They're separated from God. And it's not one of those things that we should ever talk about lightly. I hate it when I hear Christians talk about hell way too lightly. I remember how D.L. Moody said, if anyone ever talks about hell, they should talk about it with a tear in their eye because it's not, it's not something we, we rejoice. It's not something God rejoices in. In the book of Ezekiel, several times, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, therefore turn and live. You see, understand this. I love how C.S. Lewis even says, hell is a monument to human freedom. Hell is a monument to human freedom. Hell is the greatest expression, the greatest monument of people saying, I want to do it my way. I want complete independence. I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. He says the gates of the hell are locked from the inside. Here's the idea of hell. God is infinitely good, infinitely loving, infinitely peace and joy and satisfaction. So to reject an all-loving, all-good, all-infinite, all-peaceful God, you get the exact opposite. And that is eternal suffering and pain and misery and outer darkness. God is community. You get the opposite of that. Hell is the opposite of God. When you read about it, it, it's an darkness, unquenchable fire. The idea is not just it's it's dark. That's not the idea. It's not just that it's black. It's It's not just the idea. The idea is that you're eternally separated from the presence of God where there's warmth and joy and love and peace. Dark, outer, outer darkness is separated from just God's tangible presence. What makes hell so miserable is not that it's hot or dark, it's that God's presence, his tangible presence is not there. That's what makes hell so miserable. But there's a lack of community, a lack of God, a lack of relationship, alone, isolated, by yourself. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Listen to this. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. The disciples not many years from now would be sawn in half, fed to lions, lit on fire, families, children murdered in front of them. And I wonder if these words of Jesus were just ringing true. He's saying, hey, don't fear those who can kill the body. They can kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Don't fear the wrong thing. Have this sense of the fear of God. Church, I, we need the fear of God again in a healthy way. And not in this abusive father, no, because can I tell you, Jesus took on hell. Jesus embraced hell. Jesus on the cross took on the sin of the world and was separated from the Father for a period of time. He took on hell so that you and I could avoid it. It's not some angry God who's just longing to send people to hell. It's a Father who says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn and live. I'm going to show you how much I care, but my son's going to have to take on hell so you don't have to. So hell is serious, and it's been paid for. And does that make us arrogant? Does that make us prideful? Like, yes, God paid for it. I'll just do whatever I want now. No, it just, it's a humbling thing. My wife says to me, I'll love you forever no matter what. Do I go, awesome, let me just sleep around and have an affair? No. Do I abuse that crazy love she has? If I say I love you, I'll love you, honey, forever no matter what you do. Awesome, I'll just do whatever I want then. I'll stomp all over your love. That is not what we're doing. That's not what Christians can do, but so often we do that with God. So often I'm like, awesome, God, you love me no matter what? Okay, I'll just do whatever. You paid the price? Okay, I'll do whatever I want. Jesus is like, no, deal radically with your sin. Deal really radically with your sin. Either you kill it or it's going to kill you. I mean, those are really the options there. Jesus is basically, he talks about salt being preserved in the fire. Salt was a preservative. Fire was purifying. Basically, one, there's a side of it where it's judgment and people will preserve. It's an ongoing preservation of judgment. 
And he's saying, no, have salt in yourself. You be preserved with peace and hope. Don't be preserved for judgment. Be preserved for peace or hope. Jesus is basically just saying, listen, you need to take sin serious. If, uh, I want to even just say it this way. If you don't kill sin, your sin will kill you. No physical destruction can be com- compared with the spiritual destruction of hell. Jesus isn't, again, it's not cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. You, everyone needs to do that right now. Again, because here's the point. I could cut off my hand, I could pluck out my eye, I could cut off my foot, and can I tell you, I would still walk around with a sinful, broken heart. I, I could cut off all those body parts and just be a torso and head and still find a lot of ways to sin. Because the issue is not my hands or my eye or my foot, it's my heart. And what Jesus is really trying to say is, listen, we need to be so extre- deal with sin in an extreme way or it's going to deal with you and get a new heart and God can place a new heart within you. That is what Ezekiel says. That is what Jesus says. He's like, I can give you new desires, new motives, new creation. All the old things have passed away, all things have become new. Because what I really need, again, is not new limbs or new, I need a new heart. That's what I ultimately need. And Jesus says, I can do that for you. I offer that. I offer you new life, new creation in me. And Jesus is showing us, listen, you want to be great? <laughs> Deny yourself. De- deal with sin. In a ser- don't downplay it. Don't act like it's not a big deal. It breaks my heart because yeah, there's people I love in my life, family members I love in my life, and they are playing with fire. Proverbs says, how can a man play with fire in his lap and not get burned? How, there are people who like, want to play and flirt with sin over and over again. And it's like, gosh, God, let them kill it before it kills them. Let them remove it before, it before it just removes them. Like, there needs to be the sense of, God, I love you so much. I'm going to be extreme about my sin. I, it's not worth it. It is not worth having my body be complete and whole and healthy and walking straight into hell. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not good. To, who, like, who cares if everything about your life is great and your body is great and you're perfect, but you walk straight into hell with that? We need to take this serious. And guys, this is, this is going to tell you again, I'm so thankful we serve a God who paid for this, who took on the wrath of God. Jesus took on the wrath. It's not that we have this God that wants to pour our wrath on us. He poured his wrath on his son for us. Jesus absorbed the wrath so we don't have to. Isn't that good news? So we are free. So we can be a new creation. And where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Yes, that's true. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How can we who are alive to Christ live any longer in sin? Like, that is the idea. If you're alive to Christ, you're going to be dead to sin. And this is, this is what we're hoping for. This is what we're longing for in the church is saying, I take hell and sin very serious, but I also take grace and the freedom we have in Christ and what he's done for me on my behalf very serious because I can walk in confidence as well. I don't have to walk around like, oh no, what if this happens? Jesus did take it. He paid it all. I, ha- I can know that the wrath of God is poured on Jesus on my behalf. So I boast in him, not me. Amen? I boast in the finished work of the cross, not me. Amen? I'm not going to boast in a good thing I did for Christ because I probably did it with a bad motive. I'm going to boast in what Jesus Christ has done for me and the finished work of the cross on, on my behalf that he's done. This is what Jesus is talking to us. Hey, you want to be great? Don't downplay sin. Don't dismiss it. Be serious with it. Cut it out of your life or it's going to cut you. Who cares if you have your full body and your full, everything works, but you walk straight into hell. Take this, take this serious. And that's my heart. Church, please, take, like, let's take this serious. Let's take this serious. If there is sin in your life today that you need to confess, you need to say, Jesus, please remove this. I don't want to play this anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to flirt with damnation anymore. I don't want to flirt with the idea of hell anymore. Jesus, remove this. He has and he will, and he'll give you freedom, and you can have victory. And it's not overnight. It's not in one day. There's this process called sanctification where more and more layers of, of Josiah are being ripped off and Christ is being exposed. And that should be happening with all of us as we pursue and press into Christ, as we abide in Christ. Amen? That is the desire. You know, here's what's interesting. In a moment, we are going to take communion, but I, I want to share something really quick. Because you think about communion, you think about the greatest becoming the least. And please just hear this. Uh, yesterday, I had to drive north to like Orange City, north of Orlando, uh, to do a, a, a memorial for a 26-year-old. 
Um, there's a 26-year-old. I never met him, never knew him. I knew his girlfriend. I knew her family. And they called and said, can you do this memorial for, for this guy? So I said, yes. I talked to the parents the week before. I talked to his family. There's nothing like being at a memorial. There's nothing like doing a memorial. <laughs> a 20, it's my first memorial where a guy was younger than me. <laughs> and that just plays with your mind and your heart. And you're look, I'm looking at this young guy, 26. There's all these questions raised around about his life. There's all these different opinions about how he lived. And what that does for me, what that does for you, is it stops and goes, God, but what about, where am I at? Is my life a question mark? Is my life an exclamation point? Where, where am I at with you? Because we look at this guy's memorial, it reminded me of just Jesus going, Jesus, you also died. You were also buried. You were buried and died so that I don't have to be there forever buried or dead. I'll have a new body, a new life. I'll walk with you. I'll know you. Like, it just, this guy's death honestly reminded me of Jesus' death going, but Jesus, you paid it. That I don't have to fear that box. I don't have to fear the grave because we're like a seed and we're planted into the ground like, like a grave, like a, a, a box goes into the ground. So a seed goes into the ground, but what does it do? It produces life. So Jesus, though I die, my body goes into the ground, I shall live because of you, Jesus. And here's what we're going to do. We take communion to remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. To know that sin has been paid for. To know that the greatest of all came to serve all. The greatest of all took on the cross. The greatest of all took on our sin. And so as we take communion and we think about greatness, remember Jesus, the greatest of all who took on the cross? Remember the fact that he, he paid the price for you and I so we don't have to fear that grave? So we don't have to fear that box? I'd say, as you guys hold that cup, as you guys hold that cracker, here's what I'm asking you to do. We're going to pass it out in a second. I'm going to walk away. You can take it at your own time. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave, take it. If you don't, there's no need to take it. Don't feel any pressure to take it. Why remember something you don't believe in? But if you say, I want to believe in Jesus, I do, I, I do, take it. Remember his death. Remember the sacrifice he made for us on our behalf. And can I tell you, this is the thing to give thanks that we look, at, we look at the grave and we say, it has no hold on me. We look at death and say, Jesus, you rose again. Three days later, I will too rise again. So as we take communion, you want to be the greatest, become the servant. Become the least, like Jesus. I'm going to pray right now. When I'm done, we're just going to pass out communion. As you're ready, in your seat, take communion. And we'll just continue our time with worship. Father, again, we just um, thank you. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the price that you've paid. Jesus, we're just humbled by the fact that you took on the wrath of God. You took on hell so we wouldn't have to. So Jesus, we want to walk in confidence. We want to walk in a lifestyle of self-denial. We want to be new creations in you. We want to become uh, great, so we want to become the least. Jesus, you came to serve. Give us that heart. Give us that mindset. As we, we take the cracker, as we take this juice, Jesus, let it remind us of the sacrifice you paid for us. God, by your stripes we're healed that we are a new creation, that we have a new body because you give up yours. We just thank you so much for that, Jesus. We look to you now in your wonderful name. Amen.